Welcome guests and certainly greetings to all of you brethren who may be tuning in in Australia or New Zealand or the Philippines, South Africa and elsewhere and we greatly appreciate that too that we have so many that do get to hear these sermons around the world. Thank you for the special music, thank you for the fine sermonette that we had and we certainly appreciate the excellent thoughts about the elderly. I'm one of the young elderly too as you know and uh, I'm definitely young. Mr. Party and I decided, you know, a couple of years ago that old begin, old, uh, you, what is it, old age begins at 90. So I'm not there yet. So I must be a young elderly. Anyway, I want to speak to you about something very important because it's something we really got to work on as the end of this age approaches. We've got to be ready to fulfill our real calling. And most of you know what that is. There are various ways to put it. But Mr. Herbert Armstrong mentioned a number of times that all of us, that's all of you, we in the church today are called for two primary reasons. One is to do the work of God today to preach the gospel, the good news of the coming government of God, the law of God, the way of God to the whole world today, and then certainly to feed the flock. And then also we are to prepare to be those kings and priests that we'll be governing the whole world under Jesus Christ in a few years when the kingdom of God comes. We've got to be prepared for that responsibility. So those are the two big reasons we're called now. We can do the work today, but we ourselves have got to prepare ourselves as a reality to be those kings and priests to help make the right decisions, to lead the world, to inspire the world, to guide the world, certainly under Christ's leadership, and we all know that Christ will give us extra strength. He'll give us extra wisdom and judgment and understanding and love and zeal when we have spirit bodies in, the, in tomorrow's world. But we've got to set that pattern as part of our basic character today or he will not do that for us tomorrow. And certainly the whole Bible indicates that. So we've got to think about our goal. And our goal is to be those kings and priests of tomorrow's world. Our goal is to do that work of God today. Remember Jesus' statement in Matthew 6, verse 33. Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first what you seek above all else. Seek first the kingdom of God. And as Mr. Armstrong explained so many times and absolutely true, he says, brethren, kingdom means government. It's not talk about some flusy idea of just loving the Lord. The word kingdom means government. Some of you have been to the United Kingdom. I've been there and lived there for four years of my adult life. The United Kingdom of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. It's a kingdom. It's a government. And we're preparing to be part of a government. And we're trying to tell the whole world about that government which is going to come. So we've got to understand that. We're to seek first, above all else, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. To have the character built within us so we're fit to be in that kingdom. So that's our goal as well, put in a different way. Back in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation 2 and verse 26, Christ said, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. So in a very few years, Christ is going to give us power over the nations. And he says, he goes on, He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessel shall be broken in pieces, as I also received from my Father. 
So he's been given that same responsibility, but you and I, he said, are to have that responsibility as well under him to rule the nations with a rod of iron. I know it's not always with great love, with a little feather duster. We've got to be strong as King David was. We've got to be strong as all the righteous kings are to stand for something and to make God's church and God's government right and clean and pure in every way. And that's what God wants us to do. And that's what we will do. And that's what we've got to be training to do in tomorrow's world. So we are to be those kings and priests. Over in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, he's been describing the prayers of the saints. In verse 8, Revelation 5 verse 9, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Christ has bought, brought back every one of us by his shed blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests, or it can be translated a kingdom of priests, and we shall reign. So we're going to rule, not up in heaven, but on this earth. Mr. Ames has brought out, and we certainly have all agreed in the Council of Elders, and it makes sense when you see what the Bible actually clearly says. We will go to heaven for a brief spell, maybe a day or two, might just be an hour or two. Frankly, once we're spirit beings, you know, well, God, time is not important. A second is like a year in God's sight, so to speak. But we will go to heaven, of course, briefly at the wedding supper. But our reward will be on this earth as kings and priests because Christ is coming right back down to this earth and, of course, we will come down with him to be kings and priests here on this earth. And that's, of course, our calling, too, and we've got to be preparing for that. So we who are to be those leaders have to prepare. I want to give you the title of the sermon today, How to Become Christian Leaders. How to Become Christian Leaders, not just any kind of leaders, but Christian leaders. We're praying to do that right now, and we who are going to be Christian leaders, brethren, should not just barely make it, just sort of squeak into the kingdom or barely make it. We should be leaders. We should be extra strong examples. We've got to go and beyond if we're going to be those leaders. Notice what it says Jesus Christ said in Luke chapter 19, and a very familiar scripture, I'm sure, to most of you. Turn back there to Luke, Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to begin reading here in uh, verse 9, uh, Luke 19 and verse 11, I mean, verse 11. As Jesus had been speaking a parable about the kingdom of God, he spoke another parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they thought, that is the world people, the world's people there thought, the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman, this is a parable, but the, the meaning is obvious, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered them ten minas, or ten thousand dollars, ten measures of money, and said to them, do business till I come. In other words, use the money, as we could say today, use the talents, use the strength that I'm giving you till I come. But his citizens hated him, the Jews hated Christ, and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. 
And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him and to see how much every man had gained. He wants to know how we have been productive with what he gives us. Our money, our time, our talents, our life, how much we've been productive. Then came the first saying, Master, your mind has earned ten minas. This man had done a great job of using the strengths, the talents, the money, the ability he had to have an impact on other human beings preparing for the kingdom of God. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. And brethren, whatever we have in this life is very little. I think all of us understand that, that even if Nelson Rockefeller were sitting here with a lot of money, or if some great leader were here, you know, if Abraham Lincoln were still alive, or any of our great presidents, whatever they had is very, very little, frankly, compared to what we'll all have in God's kingdom. So whatever, because you are faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. And that's in an, et an eternal reward in an eternal kingdom. And the second came, saying, Master, your mind has earned. He was productive. Again, be productive. He, your mind has earned five minas. Likewise, Jesus said, you also be over five cities. But then some kind of want to sneak in God's kingdom by the little side door. They want to somehow water things down and get away with lying or cheating or stealing or adultery or drunkenness or whatever it is. And they are sometimes disloyal and sowing discord and, and watering things down in various ways to get their own way. And they don't produce. He said, your, your way is too hard. You people are too strict. So I've kept my mind in a handkerchief. I'm going to go over here by myself and I'm not going to be part of your work. I'm not going to be part of the team that you're using to do the work of God. I'm not going to be part of the work that Jesus Christ is doing. And so he put his mind in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you're an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man. You knew that I wanted you to produce. You knew that I wanted to be, you to be an active part, everyone to be an active part of the work that God is doing today, everyone who understands, everyone who has God's Spirit. You knew that. Collecting what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not go out and put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest. At least you didn't have courage to venture into some business or do something on your own, but at least you could have gotten some interest from a bank. It kind of shows that God is not against capitalism, by the way. It doesn't talk about communism here. It shows that God is not against putting your money in a bank. God is not interested in your earning interest or growing your finances if you do it in the right way, of course. But it does show we'd all better try to be productive in every way we can. And Christ is watching us. He wants us to be productive. So we've got to go above and beyond to be those Christian leaders that will be those kings and priests to be over five cities or ten cities or maybe a whole nation or maybe a whole planet, maybe a whole universe in a sense, a whole galaxy. There are millions of whole galaxies out there they're finding all the time. There may be more galaxies in the universe than there are people on earth today. The scientists have said that. There is a huge job for us to do. But brethren, God is trying us 
He's testing us. He's testing you. He's testing me. He's watching us. Do we really want to be part of the team that Jesus Christ is using to prepare for his coming government? Will we be loyal? Will we be balanced? Will we be dedicated? Are we willing to take orders before we give orders? You know, that's something they tell you in the military, and that's something that many big companies practice as well. You've got to learn to take orders before you give orders. Will we do that? We've all got to learn that lesson, and I hope that all of us understand that and will. So as we grow toward real Christian leadership, I want to give you five basic areas where you could grow in a sort of a personal sense. These are not the big spiritual points, but just in a personal way to strengthen yourself. First of all, grow in your body, your health. That may sound simple, but brethren, in this life, if you're going to be a leader today in the church and whatever part of the work you're serving, even just as a member to help others, and I'll describe how people do that, how can you help others unless you have reasonably good health for your age? Some of you may say, well, Mr. Meredith, look at you. You have a stroke. Well, wait until you're 78 years and three months old and you're still in good health and then you have a problem. Most people do, of course. Most people of my age are not around. They're in the nursing home or in the grave or somewhere. But I was extremely active up until 78 and I'm still pretty active, as most of you know, writing more articles writing out more letters than most anyone in the whole work, and most of these other works as well. I notice these other guys, not to pick on them, but they have someone else do most of the actual magazine writing and all the other stuff, and they don't do it. And Mr. Ames and I are doing a tremendous lot of work. Dr. Winnell does a tremendous lot of work, and we're all up past 70 years of age. Try to be productive, but to be productive, brethren, you've got to be in reasonably good health. That's important. Try to exercise every day. Try to eat a good diet every day. Try to be moderate in your use of alcohol and your eating desserts and sweets. Some people come around and they're gorging. I remember being up in, I'm trying to think where it was. It was in the central California Valley years ago. It may have been Modesto or somewhere. And another fellow and I were there visiting in the church and we saw three I mean, they were massive, fat women. Each of them must have weighed three or 400 pounds. I think we were eating in a cafeteria. And all those women had, at the end of their meal, great big pieces, or I think either, each of them had two pieces of pie or cake. I thought, where? Wow, they're the last people on the earth that need all that. They're just pouring it in. And I'm sure they died prematurely. I'm sure they did not live until they're 80 or 90 or 100. You've got to be careful what you eat. Eat mainly fruits and vegetables and a little bit of meat and fish and chicken and so on. Take care of your body. Secondly, exercise regularly every day. Build your body so you can be an example, so you can keep moving and keep doing the work of God, keep helping others. Think about that. Think positive thoughts. Don't feel sorry for yourself all day. That affects your health very, very much. And we can have whole sermons on that. And a set, uh, many points I've written, the seven laws of radiant health, but the other biggest one, I guess, is number four, avoid bodily injury. You can eat good, exercise, all those things, but if you step in front of a truck, <laughs> too bad, or you fall down the stairs. A lot of old people fall down the stairs or do other things. Be careful. Take care of yourself. Build your body. It's a tool that Almighty God can use to help others. 
another area of your life, and I want to speak to you young people on these things too, especially. Build your body now so you can keep serving. Build your mind, and that includes getting a good education. Keep your mind active. Read worthwhile books widely, even after you've gone to college. Read worthwhile books on leadership, management, world events. Read good biographies and autobiographies of great men and women who have learned the lessons of life. You know, God tells us in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. How do you walk with wise men and wise women? You spend time around them if you can, but you may not be able to spend a lot of time with wise men and women in person. You can certainly do it by reading, reading these worthwhile books and learning the lessons of life. Build your mind in every way to grow, to understand, and, and build wisdom. Another area, I've given my children four of these five. I know that Mike and Jim and Liz and Becca, and later David and Jonathan all had this for me, four of them, except this one. I tossed in a fifth one called finances. Finances. You young people, start now to save money. Learn the habit of saving. I've come to realize that everything we want to do in this work we're not evil. I don't want to raise. I don't want to give everyone a whole bunch of money. None of us have a whole bunch of money. We're trying to do the work of God with all of our hearts. We were talking to one of the young men, one of our outside editorial advisors the other day, and I told him that none of us had ever made 150000 a year, even the top man is less than that, considerably less, and we don't drive Cadillacs and we don't drive Rolls Royces and so forth. He says, no, I can see you're very careful and frugal, and you set a good example. I said, I don't think, I think most of the ministers, even the world's ministers, may make, you know, two or three hundred thousand, but most of them don't make a whole lot more than that. And this guy said, he looked at me kind of funny, he's, he's in that business. He said, no, I'd better not name them, but he named two or three of these big television guys. He said, they earn two or three million dollars a year. Two or three million. But he said, you guys set a good example. He'd been around and seen enough of our work to realize that. That's all right. We should be careful. But save money. I'm trying not to save it to give to the work. Save it for yourself. And if, then if you could give some to the work later in life, do so, of course. But build the habit of saving. I'm very glad that my father and mother started a savings account for me. I don't know how old I was. Probably just seven or eight years old or less. But I was sort of taught if I got money for birthdays or Christmas or anything, by the time I was 12 and 13 years old, I was mowing lawns every summer and shoveling snow every winter. And the summer I turned 15, I was working on a big wheat farm in northern Kansas. What would I do with that money? I'd take nearly all of it and give it to my dad to put in my savings account, a savings account in, in First National Bank, I think it was called, in Joplin, Missouri. Even worked, and I worked in the woods out in Oregon and worked for this uh, box company out there, Martin Box Company. I remember taking my check and signing it and then sending it back to Daddy to deposit in my savings account in Joplin, Missouri, which he would do. So through the years, I saved several hundred dollars. I think I had five or six hundred saved. And of course, back then, the dollar was worth about ten times what it is today. So that helped me get through Ambassador College and helped me a little bit to get started. There wasn't much left of then. But at any rate, it was a help to have some savings. All of you, 
all of you here, middle-aged and other, develop the habit of savings. Don't just spend all the money and throw it away. Save it. You learn to have financial strength. The fourth area you should build as you go along for being a real leader is personality. Develop your personality. Some have more natural warmth and joy and humor than others. We know that. You're just born that. You can see that as a child comes right out of the womb. My daughter Elizabeth uh, was born happy from the time she was born. She smiled. She charmed the stewardesses all the way home. My wife and I took her through Copenhagen on the way back. They didn't have any direct flight from London to Los Angeles, so we had to go through Copenhagen. The Danish airline had the over-the-pole flight direct to L.A., so we did that, and all those hours she was smiling and happy, and the stewardesses were picking her up and relieving Margie holding her all the time. She was just smiling all the time, and that's good. Have personality, but some of us have to work at it harder. I've always been an intense person. I can use that intensity to serve God, but also I can try to develop the love, the warmth, the outflowing concern, and show it as best I can within my personality to let people know that I love them, to let people know that I care, and all of you should try to do that. You've got to do that. And that's so important to show love and to show enthusiasm and to show zeal and so on, to show outflowing concern. Fifth, character. The fifth big area that you learn as you grow up, you young boys and girls, you young people in the church, you middle-aged people, older people. That, of course, is the most important of all. But all these are important. Build character. Build the very nature of God within yourself or rather surrender to ask God to build it within you through his spirit and do your part so you then have God's wisdom, God's love, God's faith, and you have God's self-control. That's another fruit of God's spirit. So you discipline yourself to resist the wrong and to do the right character. My old uncle Paul, my father's brother, told me, I, I was already in the ministry at the time, so I must have been 23 or 4, a very young man, and he knew I didn't have anything particularly. I was still very young and, and didn't have money to have a car and wasn't married yet. He says, Rod, strengthen yourself. He said that a couple of times, strengthen yourself. And I said, well, what do you mean? Uh, I'm going to lift weights. <laughs> okay, he did, I, that's good. Build your health, but you better strengthen yourself in every way. And he mentioned some of these other points, including financial strength. So you have something to fall back on so you're not helpless as you get older and so on. So build your body so you're strong to help others. Build your mind so you have capacity to help others and serve your God. Build your financial strength. That's a source of strength. You can help others with that. Don't hoard it all. Give all you can to the work within reason and help others also and help your family. You have strength in that way. Build your personality where you can show love and enthusiasm and joy and peace and so on. And build character so you stand for something. And God sees that. So we've all got to build those strengths. And that's part of preparing to be a leader. It really is. That might not seem like it's directly spiritual, but it is all ties into that. And I think if you read the Bible very much, you know that you've got to have those strengths or you can't see God. If you're tired all the time, sick all the time, you have to miss work all the time, you have to miss coming to services all the time because you're sick all the time, 
How are you going to grow spiritually? How are you going to set an example? How are you going to serve others? All those things are necessary to be a leader. And I hope all of you will try to be a Christian leader in the way that God wants you to be. Back in Proverbs chapter 24, turn to Proverbs chapter 24. It says in verse 5, A wise man is strong. Yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. Yes, you've got to increase your strength in all those five areas to be a real leader. For by wise counsel, you will wage your war. Is there a time to wage war? Not by killing others today, but in ancient times, God did guide his servants to fight the battles of the eternal when Israel was a carnal nation. And God led Abraham and blessed him and going out with his young men to save his nephew Lot. God blessed Moses in winning war after war after war supernaturally. He said, don't go straight at him. Go around the trees and come back the other way. He said that to King David. He said that to others. But we have wars in the church of God sometimes, and we've got to be strong. Back when the bad guys were trying to split us, split this whole work, and they did ex uh, succeed in that, frankly, back in 1998. As you know, we had this split with those who became the global church of God or kept that name, and we were kicked out and had to start all over, and we had to run the work out of our home. They were trying to overthrow us. And I tried to get multitude of counsel. I talked to all the other leaders at that time, including Mr. Ames, and I talked to all, I don't remember all the men that were there, but certainly Carl McNair was there, Mr. John O'Gwen was there, and others, five or seven of them. And I said, what do you think we should do? And they all agreed we should not sit on our hands and let them take over and ruin the work of God. We had to go to war spiritually to get out the letter that I sent out to make calls, to reach the people, to straighten out things and get the truth out and get the work going again. So you need to do that, but have wise counsel. And it's important to get wise counsel about everything. That's one of the main things in learning to be a leader. Get wise counsel. You young people, don't just go to the other kid who has the same idea you do already. You understand that's not going to help you very much if you're honest. Go to some older people. Go to some people with experience, some wise people, and get their counsel. I'll go on that later. By counsel, you will wage your own war, and in a multitude of counselors, several at least, five or ten, and I've often, before we moved back here, I must have talked to at least 20 or 30 people. I know I talked to several of the ladies and asked their opinion. What do you think? you think this is going to be good? Will it work out? Did I talk to all the leaders in, in Charlotte or in Pat San Diego? And I talked to many of our regional pastors beside and others all over the United States and maybe around the world before we moved here. And God blessed that and we are able to do the work much better because we don't have to let Alan, our landlord, keep raising the rent and, have, and take all the money. So we have money and we've been able to go on more television stations to print more magazines, we're up to about 425,000 circulation to go on the internet and do more things than we would ever have been able to do if we'd stayed out there in San Diego, which was the fourth most expensive city in the nation when we left and later became the third most expensive for real estate. And I don't know what it is now, but at any rate, it certainly was very expensive. Beautiful weather, but you pay for the weather. 
several out there have acknowledged that when I've talked to them. In fact, I've seen that in articles. You pay for the weather. It's good weather, but boy, when you go to buy a house, instead of spending a, getting a nice house for, let's say, 200000 it just doubles. And I'm not exaggerating. It totally doubles when you get out there. So it's something. So anyway, by wise counsel, you can make decisions. And the multitude of counselors, there is safety in going to war and fighting a battle, standing up in a difficult situation, all kinds of things, get multitude of counsel. So a wise man strengthens himself in all those ways, and you've got to learn to do that. You want to ask yourself and ask God for vision. One of the big things a wise man has, a real leader has, is vision. I think you know the scripture on that. I'll turn to it. It's Proverbs 29, Proverbs 29, verse 18, where there is no vision, the King James has it, the people perish. A person who has the big picture, who sees ahead, who envisions what ought to be done and has the drive and wisdom to know how to get it done, without vision, the people perish but happy is he who keeps the law. So God's law tells you the way to live and the ultimate goal and so forth, but you need vision. And we've got to have vision as leaders, and God wants us to develop that. So ask God for vision and big-mindedness. We've had problems in our work recently, as some of you know, in some departments, because some people got their mind off what? They got their mind off vision they got their mind off the big picture and just on some supposed mistake that someone made or some little doctrine they disagreed with. I noticed Dr. Winnale has a fine uh, little uh, wise sayings as he often puts in the pastor's report or the ministerial bulletin we send out and it talks about the loose bricks. Is that in the local bulletin here? It may be. I didn't get to see it. But at any rate, that's very important. Instead of seeing the big picture of what we're doing and getting the message around the world, some people among us have been looking for the loose bricks. If I make one misstatement, or Mr. Ames does, or we bring up even the idea of a new doctrine, they're going to say, oh, they're starting off into the way of the devil. They're bringing a new doctrine. How terrible. We must not ever have any new doctrines. We must stay exactly where we are. We can't grow. We can't change. We can't have any more understanding. We've got to just stay right here. No, God does not say that. Mr. Armstrong introduced several new doctrines when the time I was there, and he changed a number of old doctrines. He changed back and forth on makeup three different times. Then he changed on counting Pentecost on the meaning of a word, as I explained a couple of weeks ago, just on the understanding of one word was at least the final thing that helped him see the truth about counting Pentecost, which is counting 50 days from, which in the Hebrew that word from could mean beginning with the Sunday during the days of unleavened bread. And when he understood from a Hebrew teacher who was not a Christian arguer, he believed it, from that and other things, too, that, yes, that was correct. Then we came to realize, yes, Pentecost is on Sunday, not on Monday. He grew in that. He grew in a number of new things. Of course, the whole concept of God reproducing himself that we could be full sons of God. He didn't understand that when I came to college. What if I got all upset and said, well, Mr. Armstrong's come up with something terrible. I'm leaving. Well, I would have left back in 1953, and I wouldn't be around. He had a lot of new changes, new doctrines, deeper understandings, and we should see. Don't look at the loose bricks. Learn to have vision and wisdom and see the big picture of what's actually being done. 
what is Christ doing? And you'll see that no basic doctrine has been changed and no basic doctrine, brethren, I want to say this and hope this goes out to all the churches. We, the leaders here in Charlotte and in the Council of Elders, we have never at any time discussed changing any, any, any basic doctrine of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath, the Holy Days, the laws of God, heaven, hell, immortality of the soul, any of those things. When you say change in heaven, well, we, we go there for the wedding supper, but that's not our eternal reward. So we haven't changed any basic doctrine, and we do not intend to. There's no new doctrine, by the way, in the wind. If someone knows of one, you tell me. <laughs> but as far as I know, I think I talked to Dr. Winnell and Mr. Ames just the other day. We are not discussing any new doctrine, period. But if God reveals something later on, I hope all of you would be happy that you say yes, if it's based on the Bible and the basic foundation we've always taught. Well, of course, you may have a better way to understand some technical point. You know, when God revealed a whole bunch of things in the book of Daniel, at the end of Daniel, he said in chapter 12, he said, these things are closed and sealed until the time of the end. Then men would understand. Well, we are at the time of the end, and we will understand a few more technical things. Be wise. Have vision. Have big-mindedness. See the big picture of what Christ has really been. Otherwise, you can't be leader. You'll be out anyway. You won't be leading anywhere except going off in a hole and pulling the cover in behind you, so to speak. But try to understand that and learn to have real vision and big-mindedness so you can be part of the work that Christ is doing. Ask yourself, brethren, how can I best serve? Say the word I. Normally, I don't emphasize I, but emphasize how can I best serve? All of you, brethren, are not called to be ministers. You know that. All of you are not called to be big leaders or executives in the work or anywhere else. Some of our elderly men, some of our ladies and others are not called for that reason. They understand that. They don't have a problem. But understand, you can be a leader no matter what situation in life that you are. I've often mentioned some of these examples, so I'll mention them quickly. But we had a man years ago... I would never, and Mr. Armstrong didn't either, ever thought of ordaining him as, a, as an elder or evangelist unless Christ directed us to. I would certainly do it then. His name was Bill Homburger, but he was one of the most dedicated, kind, serving men I've ever known. He came out from, he sold his peanut farm in Texas, gave the money, nearly all of it, to Mr. Armstrong to do the work, came out with his own brief, small savings, his own pickup truck, which he gave to the college. He, he drove it in the service of the work and let all of his students drive it to help do the work around the campus and gave his life continually to God. A wonderful example. I better not go on, but he was continually giving and helping and serving. But he was missing some teeth. His grammar was not too good. He only had a sixth grade education, but his heart was pure. <laughs> He had a wonderful attitude, and he will have a great reward in God's kingdom. How was Bill Homburger a leader? Well, he led me. I was a student body president for a while and still looking to Bill Homburger for leadership quite often because he was often helping us young students fix this wall, take care of this over the lawn, repair this, take out these old trees and put in camellia trees over here, all kinds of things like that. And he was older. He knew what he was doing. He worked hard. He set as an example of hard work, of frugality, of humility, of service, of kindness. 
It was a wonderful example. He was my leader in that way. He was a leader. We had other men coming along like Mr. Raymond Jorgensen. Mr. Jorgensen was the Iowa farmer who was an older man and not an elder, not a deacon, lived way off from a local church that couldn't even get there regularly, I understand. He and his brother together were bachelors, and they owned this great big Iowa farm, very expensive farmland with wonderful barns and tractors and trucks and so on. His brother died, and, and so it all came to him. And about six months or a year later, he died. And Raymond Jorgensen is one of the reasons we're here. Why are we here in Charlotte, North Carolina? Why are we here in this building? Partly because of Raymond Jorgensen. At his death, he had willed his entire farm, property, everything to the work of Jesus Christ. And it was by far the biggest donation we have ever had even to this day. That one donation was nearly $1 million, 900 and something thousand dollars. So we were very grateful for that. And frankly, we had been praying, many of us, asking God to show us, should we move? Can't we do the work better somewhere where it's less expensive? Where should we go? And we settled on Charlotte, North Carolina. And about that time, here comes Raymond Jorgensen's donation. <laughs> God knew. He took care of it. And we're here. And we want to honor that. How is he a leader? He was a leader in, in giving that example, which many of us will never forget. I think of Mrs. Roy Hammer. Most of you know Roy Hammer, who was a wonderful example back there. Mrs. Roy Hammer was Garner Ted Armstrong's mother-in-law, but Mr. Hammer was the one who gave us, with his son, much of the property where Ambassador College later developed and the peace site. But Mrs. Hammer also was working equally hard and effectively as a lady, and the ladies can serve in those ways which she certainly did. She was helping people all around that area know about the truth. She was hardworking, extremely friendly, outgoing. Many neighbors and others got interested through her. When the young men came through on baptizing tours and other people, she would constantly help them. I've told you how she helped Raymond McNair and me. We came through, and we had a motel already, or she was going to make us stay at their house, but we'd already checked in. But she said, I, I have five boys. She said, I know you boys, you don't wash your clothes very good, do you? I thought, oh, here we go. And I was a little embarrassed she was going to wash my dirty undershorts. But she insisted, so we did. And she washed all our clothes and took care of us. She just was like a grandmother to us and helped and helped every time we came through. Later, we had the Ambassador College there and the big feast. And Mrs. Hammer would be the one that was the... The, well, I guess what she was the woman uh, to take care of everything. She became the uh, uh, receptionist. People would call her. Her husband was out working. She'd take the ideas. She'd take the request for help. She'd tell them where it was, what they had to do, help people, convey the messages to her husband and to the ministry. And then she'd help people personally when they came and constantly helped set up the thing. So we had the Feast of Tabernacles there, going up to 14,000 people attending just at Big Sandy, at Big Sandy alone. Mrs. Hammer helped make that possible. And she talked to other women. She had them helping her. She would delegate some to Mrs. Jones or Mrs. Smith or other ladies too. She knew how to do that. She'd had eight children, five boys and three girls, and she was a goer. <laughs> she was a worker. She was a leader. I've often told you about Chloe Shippard up in Portland, Oregon, my first ministry up there. She was a leader. She was a deaconess. 
But every week, and here I was practicing, and I knew that. I wasn't, I was pretty young and new, and, but I was not totally stupid. But I'd get this letter every, every week from Mrs. Shippert saying what a wonderful sermon I'd given and how people were appreciated me. Well, of course, I knew she was almost old enough to be my grandmother. And I thought, well, grandmother's encouraged me. Here we go again. And she was, but was encouraging still, even though I realized that she was telling me wonderful things and that encouraged me constantly. And she encouraged people all through the church. When a woman was sick, when a woman was, just had a baby, who was the one always out there to help her? The first one, Mrs. Close Shippert. She was the one right on the spot. Did she get any salary? No. Did anyone get up and brag on her in church? No. I might have once before I left, but basically she didn't get that. She did it because she was a Christian leader, because she wanted to give to help to serve, and she was laying up treasure in heaven by being a leader in the Portland Church of God. So anyway, many ways we can all serve, whether we get to be a great executive or a minister or whatever. There's so many ways we can all lead. Learn to inspire one another. Inspire others around you to be interested in the kingdom of God, the way of God. You can be a leader in that way and lead them in various ways to know about God and to talk about God and to be involved in the work of God. So inspire the others around here. Inspire you, brethren, who work in the office. Inspire the others with your loyalty, with your enthusiasm, with your commitment to the work of God. That's a way you can be the leader, plus doing your job the very best you can to serve the living God. You're not serving me. You're not serving Mr. Ames. You're serving the eternal God. You're serving the living Jesus Christ. He's the one who will give you a reward. And I think you all know that. It's good to meditate on that. Be realistic and humble and ask yourself, how can I, a woman, a man, an old person, or a young person, best serve? There's so many ways you can serve and be a leader in that way. So we want to do that. Uh, I want to then read this to you about the attitude of service that Jesus Christ gave us. It's back in Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23, and he said here in verse 11, Matthew 23, 11, he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. You're to do it in the attitude of service. And whoever exalts himself will be abased, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. When people are going around just acting important, and trying to push themselves forward. We've had many ministers push themselves into the ministry over the years, and we've learned, I hope, not to allow that to happen. A person should try to just serve God the best he can, but not ever try to push himself in. I remember one great big flamboyant personality came to Ambassador College one time, and he tried to show off continually, and when he got to give his first sermonette down in Long Beach, I, I often went out with the young men because I was teaching speech in those days and over the ministry, and I took him along. And he was supposed to give a 10 or 12-minute sermonette, as our general rule, and was then. Rather, he talked about 25 or 30 minutes, about three times as long as he should have. And at the end, he got down on one knee, spread out his long arms, and he gave an appeal. He was going to save the whole church of God right there. <laughs> that was the way he started he was amazing. Later he got Bain and left the whole church and everything. 
he ended up in jail for a while of selling fraudulent securities and all kinds of things. He should never have been in the ministry. Don't push yourself into any job. Try to serve the best you can where you are. And if you humble yourself, God will exalt you if he wants you in a bigger job. He's alive, believe me. He's upstairs. He's watching. The eyes of the Lord go, go to and fro through the whole earth, it tells us. He knows where you are. He can give you a bigger job. So don't push yourself. But if your job requires it, if you're already a department head or some big leader here in the work or in the business, or some of you later have your own work or business, learn to delegate. Learn to build a good team of, of capable people around you. And from what I remember, Mrs. Hammer did that too. She wasn't some big executive, but she had a number of ladies helping her because she could call them and assign one to do this and another to do that. How do you run a feast of 14,000 people? You don't do it yourself. And Mrs. Hammer knew that. So she wasn't running the feast totally, but believe me, she was doing behind-the-scenes work, preparing an awful lot before our team from Pasadena ever got there. And I remember hearing about it. Many people didn't realize what Mrs. Hammer had been doing all by herself before our people ever showed up. Because she knew what to do, and she was doing it. So delegate, and learn how to delegate, and to whom to delegate. Where do you get that? Well, that's from uh, the book of Exodus. Some of you know this very well. Exodus chapter 18. Delegate, brethren, is not to try to get out of work. Delegating is simply letting other people do specific parts of the big project that you can't do everything, but you assign people to do this or that under you that they can do, and often they can do it better. You know, in this work of God, I delegate to people all through the work, of course, because most of the people I delegate to are much better than I am at their particular specialty. Mr. Ames is certainly better than I am at TV and better at certain facets of, of history and prophecy and chronology and other things. Dr. Linnell is certainly better at history in certain areas he's good at and health and, and science, and he's very capable and very well organized in getting things going all over the world. And we have men like Mr. Wyatt Soselka, who's very capable in just getting things done and being an expediter and, 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 and so on as an executive because he's worked an outside company and sees how those things are done. And we have Mr. Wakefield, who has his master's degree in finance and has been a wonderful business manager and director in the whole financial area and other areas of the work right here and certainly more capable than that than I would be. I didn't get a master's degree in finance from Columbia University, and he did. And he's very capable, having had his own business for years. I better not go on, but there are all areas all around the work where men are more capable than I am, and I appreciate it. But I can try to have the vision and set the pattern, but delegate to them. They can delegate to those under them, but do it the right way. And God tells us about that. It shows when Moses sat to judge the people, Exodus chapter 18, verse 13, he began to stand up and the people were standing all day long waiting on him. And his father-in-law came along and said, what you're doing is not good. Verse 18, both you and these people are going to wear yourselves out. Listen to my counsel. He told them to delegate. He says, you'll teach the people the statutes and laws and show them the way at which they must go. Verse 20, 
verse 21, moreover, you shall select. In other words, you've got to choose. There was no voting. It wasn't politicking. Here was a wise man. Moses was the man of God who had the greatest overall capacity in that way and understanding of the mind of God of any man on earth at that time. And God used him. But through God's guidance, he was not to vote or to have others vote. He was to select or to appoint men under him. You select from all the people able men such as fear God. That's the first qualification. They should be, we would say in today's language, deeply converted, really converted. Have the fear of God, the awe of God, and not want to play little games and, and play politics and make excuses and so on. Men of truth, not being willing to water things down, such as hate covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds and rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. And the commentaries and histories indicate here that when a man was a ruler of ten, that didn't mean he was a ruler of ten people. It meant he was a ruler over ten families. And they had big families back then. So often a family would be five or ten people right there. As Mrs. Hammer's family was two father and mother and eight kids. And the McNair family was father and mother and eight. You have ten there. Well, ten times ten is a hundred. So that man might have been over a hundred and a ruler over fifty times 10 might have been a man of 500, if you see what I mean. So they were to be rulers or leaders of that group of people and let them judge the people at all times. They were to make the normal judgments of upsets between the brethren, hurt feelings, disputes over property, whatever it was. Then it will be that every great matter they bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. Anyway, it went out to work out that way. Later we find even King David doing the same thing. We find Solomon doing the same thing. We find other great kings of Israel doing the same thing. God guided that. That was his way. That type of delegation from the top down, but using wisdom and having others do part of the job, but you're still ultimately responsible because you've got to be sure the ones you delegate to are really converted and they are to be able men. They should be capable men or capable women, as we think here in the world, people that can do the job. As they get older, we're going to ask all of our new employees to take vocational aptitude tests. And they will take those tests, and we will know before we hire them, are they really good at this kind of job, rather than just happening to show up here and get in some job. So we've got to be careful. Put able men and women in these positions, and that is following God's ways. That's a way to be a leader and you need to learn how to delegate. I could have a whole sermon on that, but that's better you read books and articles. You delegate by giving it to a person that you're sure is capable in that area, and then you show him the parameters of his responsibility. You're to do this and this and this, but don't go over and do this up over here. This is someone else's area. You stick to this and do it in this way. Give him the general way you want him to do it, the big picture, but then let him have a lot of creative imagination and freedom so he can do it his own way that he sees at the time and make a lot of decisions himself. Depends on the situation. But you've got to then follow through and check back on him from time to time and make sure the job is being done. That's your responsibility. Delegate. Be a leader. Get a bigger job done by using others to help do parts of a big job if a team is required. Be sure it is a good team. 
you want a good team. I want to read a little bit of you from one of my favorite books. I've used it before. It's by the man that's called the Dean of Management Experts in the whole world. He lives to be 90, I don't know, 94, 96, 98 years old, a long, wonderful life. His name was Peter Drucker, Peter Drucker, and he wrote very extremely helpful things on leadership and management. Back here in his book, The Effective Executive, is one of the best books on management ever uh, you, you read here on page, uh, I got the wrong page here, I want to get on page 72 here at this point. He said, he talks about appointing capable men, but he showed how Lincoln learned the hard way by appointing sort of men that didn't have big mistakes or faults, but they didn't have any big strengths either. And so he finally had to learn to choose someone that was strong. And, and of course, he would win in the battles because he was a strong person, even though he had some personal problems. As a result, the well-rounded men Lincoln had appointed were beaten time and again by these single-purpose generals uh, who, were, who were strong men and men of great strength. Whoever tries to place a man or staff an organization and to avoid weakness will end up at best with mediocrity. So it tells you to use people that are strong in their capabilities and use them and be sure you don't put them where they can misuse their strength, of course. The executive who is concerned with what a man cannot do rather than what a man can do and who therefore tries to avoid weakness rather than make strength effective is a weak man himself. He probably sees strength in others as a threat to himself. We have had some strong men come with us and I've been warned about some of them. This is not just recently. It's been one or two recently, but others in the past. They said, we've well, got to be afraid of this guy. He's very ambitious. Well, if he's very ambitious, we want to watch him, but we want not to be afraid of him. We want to use the strength he has. And that's a very important thing. But no executive has ever suffered because his subordinates were strong and effective. There is no prouder boast but no, also no better prescription for executive effectiveness in the words of Andrew Carnegie, the father of the United States steel industry. Andrew Carnegie was one of the greatest steel uh, builders in the whole world at the time. In fact, he was, became a multimillionaire, a billionaire in today's money. He chose to put on his own tombstone, this was his epitaph he had put on his tombstone, here lies a man who knew how to bring into his service men better than he was himself. And Drucker goes on, but of course every one of these men was better, quote unquote, because Carnegie looked for his strength and put it to work. Each of these steel executives was a better man in one specific area and for one specific job. Carnegie, however, was the effective executive among them because he was willing to delegate and to get very capable men to do the job that had to be done. And so we do want to understand that it's, it's certainly important to delegate and not be afraid to delegate, and no one is perfect that we're going to delegate to. I've, had, I've heard that there's some criticism because we've had some outside TV advisors and helpers uh, with us in the current situation in the television studio. 
They say, we don't want any carnal man telling us what to do over in television. Mr. Armstrong would never do that. Some of these people are very zealous for Mr. Armstrong. Of course, the problem is they never knew him, probably never saw him, were never around him. And this is no thing that any stars in my crown because I make mistakes every day and continue to. But I do happen to be the man that knew Mr. Armstrong better than any human being that's alive. Go check it up. <laughs> I just happens to be that way. I heard recently his daughter died, his youngest daughter Dorothy finally died. And she, really, she didn't know him better than me because the time he was converted, she wasn't and she went off her own way. I got to spend thousands of hours with Mr. Armstrong. And Dick Armstrong took me over to Hollywood two or three times or maybe four when Mr. Armstrong was doing television over there. We were on TV for about a year way back in the 1950s. Did he have a bunch of converted people around? No, not one of them was converted. There weren't any converted television people there. He used outsiders, and they were standing around the edge of this set smoking, and some of them were occasionally saying, you know, some bad word and so on. I wasn't shocked because I grew up in the world, world and so on. But that's what they were. They were not converted at all. Now, Mr. Armstrong had converted the people around him all the time at Ambassador College, right? No. There wasn't a single solitary converted person on the faculty of Ambassador College for the first two full years of Ambassador College. In the third year, Dr. Hay, as he was now a leader, began to teach some classes part-time. And the third year, Mr. Jack Elliott and his wife came out from Texas where they had been baptized the previous summer by the two Raymonds, as we used to call them, Raymond Cole and Raymond McNair. And Mr. Elliott had a degree from the University of Texas, so he had had some experience in math in certain areas, and he became a math teacher and the dean of students. So he was converted, and his wife. They were very good people back in those days. But the rest of the faculty was not converted. I had to kind of fight the battles of the eternal even back then against some of the faculty. One of them was named Mr. Molly Ennis. If you look at the old envoys, the college yearbook, you'll see this man with kind of wavy white hair and very impressive looking. He was the teacher, the professor of French and Spanish. But he was totally carnal, and he had a flamboyant personality and flamboyant uh, anger. <laughs> he could really yell <laughs> and get upset. He was an old man, lost his temper pretty easily. He was putting Mr. Armstrong down something bad one time, and Mrs. Miss Betty Bates, our only girl student, tried to speak up for Mr. Armstrong, and he landed on her. And I was only the student body president, but I landed on him. And I shouldn't have, I guess, but I said, Mr. Yenesee, you don't talk to Mr. Armstrong like that. That's what I'm doing. I said, no, you don't do that. And Betty went out crying. He said, you go up to me. We'll go up to Mr. Armstrong. Well, I thought, that's wonderful. He said, yes, let's do that. Then he realized it wasn't, it wasn't going to work out. Well, we'll see about that later. Of course, he never did go up to Mr. Armstrong. I did. And Mr. Armstrong tried to, you know, somehow get him off the hook because he didn't have anyone else to teach French and Spanish. But he had to work with those carnal people for years. They were the main part of the faculty and staff of Ambassador College. The earlier one before Stan Rader came along, but this man was named Bolivar O'Rear. And he was running that job. And Bolivar O'Rear and Molly Ennessy and a whole bunch of the rest of them kept talking against Mr. Armstrong. And they called Mr. Armstrong the Heavenly Father. And Ted was Mr. Armstrong's little man, his boy with a red chariot. He had the red chariot because Dick had a red, not Cadillac, but Plymouth 
Plymouth, the cheapest of the Chrysler products, a Plymouth convertible. It was red, so they made fun of him. And they were putting Mr. Armstrong down and saying, when this thing folds up, because we were always having financial troubles, because Mr. Armstrong was extremely zealous to take every dollar and put it to get new radio stations or whatever. And so we had to beg for our check. And to get a check just before the landlord would kick us out of our apartment, we would go and, and beg Vern for a check and get the money so we wouldn't get kicked out. It, it was kind of like that. It's kind of amusing looking back. But God always took care of us. I never starved. I missed several meals, but never starved. And it was okay. It's a good test for us. But anyway, <clears throat> we have to be willing to work with outsiders when we have a situation. And Mr. Armstrong certainly did do that for years and years in Ambassador College and for a year or two in the television area as well. Completely unconverted people. And the work grew and the work was blessed because of what Mr. Armstrong was doing. Now, a real leader has to have vision and understand not only the big picture, but the immediate goal and goals. So all of you who are department heads or leaders in the work and you other brethren around the world and you young people learn how to set intermediate goals before the kingdom of God. What should you really be doing? How can you help the church the best to set that goal and set the goal of what you can do and what others in your church can do and how you can best do in your life, in your business or career to be a leader and to be successful. Will a Christian leader, a Christian leader, really strongly correct or yell at his followers ever? Should that ever happen? You say, oh, that's not nice. That's not nice. A Christian leader will never do that. Well, if that's the case, let's turn now to, Mar to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 here is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And he was beginning to tell his disciples just after he told Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In verse 16, then he began to tell the disciples in verse 21 that he was going to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He says, I'm going to be killed and be raised up the third day. Well, the disciples weren't glad to hear he was going to be killed. Of course, that upset them. Then Peter, who was the leader, Christ didn't kick him out, but he yelled at Christ, uh, Peter a number of times. I'm sure I shouldn't say yell, but he must have raised his voice. If you get the picture, I know he did. Then, then Christ told Peter, he took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. As Peter told Christ, I should say that. Then Christ turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Oh, that wasn't, you see, that was really awful. No, Christ said, You have a satanic attitude. You're my leading apostle, but you, my leading apostle, have a satanic attitude. Boy, that was strong stuff. Sometimes you need to correct those. We ministers need to correct those that are really causing division or just belittling what the leaders say. Christ did that himself. Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. Peter was an offense, for you are not mindful of the things of God. You don't have a converted attitude today, Peter. What's wrong with you? You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after him, me, I mean, he said, let him deny himself and take up his cross. 
Are you willing to take up a cross and follow Jesus Christ? A cross meant suffering, perhaps death, a symbol of that kind of trials and tests. For whoever desires to save his life, you want it nice and easy. You don't want any problems. You don't want any hard work. You don't want to ever have to sacrifice. You want to keep saving your money and saving your money and never give anything to the work. Whatever it is, you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what Jesus said. Brethren, Christ wanted people to give their all and to be humble and to serve in whatever way they could. I think it's important that you understand that Christ was constantly giving his life in serving others, serving little people and doing without. He says, the men of the world have their houses and palaces. The Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. And I remember when you, all the times Christ was sacrificing, the apostle Paul sacrificed and spent years in jail. He had to hang on to a plank out in the middle of the sea, looking up and saying, God, you're up there and I'm down here, and how's it going to work out? Had to trust in God, things like that, over and over, and beatings, and without food, and hungry, and cold, and miserable, and still trusted God, and went through trials and tests. None of us have had to do that to that degree. But Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong had to do without over and over again when the work was still being started back there, and they did do that. And they taught many of us to try to go above and beyond. What if I'd said back when I was in Ambassador College, well, I'm the student body president, or I'm going to be an evangelist, or I'm not going to do this job. They gave me all kinds of grunt jobs to do, and it never occurred to us to say, we're not going to do this, or later on when we were in the ministry. Around Ambassador College, it got to be kind of an interesting, uh, everyone knew it, that when there were scraps of paper or some kind of trash around the campus of Ambassador College, who was most likely to pick it up if it wasn't time for the gardeners to, co to t take care of that part of the campus? The dean of Ambassador College, the dean, Dr. Herman Hay, he would see things over here and he'd walk, I'd be walk, he'd walk over here and pick up this trash and put it in his pocket or something or cape it, find a barrel for it. He, he didn't say, I'm above that. I've got a doctor's degree. I'm an evangelist. He would just see the need. He'd do the job, whatever it was. We're going to ask you in the work sometimes to do little things that are not seemingly important at the time, but Dr. Hay would do it. Raymond Manair would have done it. Raymond Cole would have done it. A lot of us would have done it in those days. Mr. Armstrong had to do that himself in the early days. He had to actually chop the wood, light the wood stove in the old church building, lay out the hymnals on the pews in this old building. Some of you have seen it. I've seen it up in Eugene, Oregon. He did that. He didn't say, I'm a minister. I'm God's apostle. I don't want to do that. He just did it. You do to serve in every way you can. And you develop leadership in that way because that is setting an example. And an example, the right example, is a powerful sign of real leadership. So let's turn now back to Peter Drucker once again, if you would. He says, he's talking here about character. This is on page 87, bottom of 86. He talks about one area of leadership which is not primarily concerned with strengths but that is how a bright, young, ambitious person tends to mold himself after a forceful boss. A forceful boss has got to set the example. If you're a real Christian leader, you've got to set the example. 
There is therefore nothing more corrupting, Drucker writes, and more destructive in an organization than a forceful but basically corrupt executive. Such a man might well operate effectively on his own, even within an organization. He might be tolerable if denied all power over others. But in a position of power within an organization, he destroys. So this is one area in which weakness itself is of great importance. By themselves, he says, character and integrity accomplish nothing. Well, that's not true. He goes on to discern, he says, their absence faults everything else. Their absence faults everything else. So what do they accomplish? They accomplish tremendous amount by setting the example, by inspiring others, by example, to be honest, to be clean, to be Christian, to be hardworking, to be a loyal member of the team. That's one of the few areas I, just the way Rucker worded that, was not, I thought, ideal. But he has wonderful points in there. He shows without character, everything else goes to the board. Brethren, I've known some very effective leaders in the work of God through the years, and I won't name them. But many of them were bigger physically and more impressive looking than I was. They had a more impressive personality. Some of them were very fast-minded, tremendous charisma and capacity. But one thing they lacked, one word, character, and they all left or had to be kicked out because of a lack of character. In my freshman speech class in Ambassador College, I used to start out the very first class describing what is the most important quality of a really top minister, a top preacher. Is it a wonderful voice? No. Is it a wonderful personality? No. Is it great knowledge of the Bible? No. You go back to the old saying, what you are screams at me so loudly I cannot hear what you are saying. Because a couple of the men I'm talking about had wonderful character or wonderful personality and speaking ability, but when it was found out they were disobeying God and they were doing some very awful things, then people could not respect them. Some of the men said, yeah, you're up there, but, you know, I can't listen to you, fella. They knew what was up. They could not listen to their sermon because they knew the man lacked character. So we've got to have character if we're going to be a good leader because lack of character, as Peter, as Peter Drucker explains, corrupts everything else. And that's a very, very important understanding. And we've got to really understand how important that is. Now, another important aspect of leadership, of course, as a leader has to make decisions. And I could give a whole sermon on this point and maybe do so, but just briefly, it's wisdom. You've got to make good decisions. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 4, brethren. Proverbs 4. And uh, get to my markings here. So this is Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 7. God inspired Solomon here to write, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she will deliver to you. Yes, wisdom will give you a crown of glory. 
as a real leader has to make right decisions and he has to pray to God. God says back in James, the first chapter, go ahead and turn to it if you want to, but James 1 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Ask God for wisdom. But another thing about wisdom is to study this book I was just reading out of, the book of Proverbs. It's one of my favorite books, and since I started, we started the Global Living Church of God, I've read it any more than I ever did before. I realize we've got to make right decisions. Mr. Armstrong is not here anymore to make those decisions. So we seek wisdom. Read Proverbs. Read it again and again. Get a commentary and read that. They're not always right, but most of their points are helpful about what a verse means if it's unclear. Seek wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Stay around people with wisdom, as it says, as I quoted already in Proverbs chapter uh, 13, verse 20. Uh, have seek wisdom by being around righteous men and, and wise men and then you'll learn wisdom from those people and the books that they wrote then of course practice wisdom ask God to guide you to get all the facts to think things through to see the big picture try to think about the end result of what your decision would be not the immediate result some people think the immediate result some kids come along and they think the immediate result of having sex right now might be a lot of fun. Yeah, it might be. What's the end result? Broken homes, wrong character, building a habit that will haunt you the rest of your life, probably sexually transmitted disease, in some cases even AIDS that will destroy you. Think about the end result. Do you want to use sex God's way or the world's way? Do you want to use sex God's way or the way of Satan the devil? And so you think about the end result. What's the end result of this? What's the end result of being with this kind of people? Is the end result of hanging around people that drink too much all the time a good thing? No. Is the end result of being around people who are constantly, yank, 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 well, they're wrong, we don't agree with that. Negative people, is that a good thing? No, it's not. Might be fun at the beginning to listen to all the chatter, but the end result will probably destroy you, take you out of the church of the living God and keep you from eternal life if you kept on in that direction. So think about the results, the end result of wisdom. And as I said earlier, and I will just read this directly now rather than refer to it, Proverbs chapter 11, Proverbs 11 where, and verse 14, where there is no counsel, the people fall. Things go wrong if you don't get counsel. Good advice, not just from your buddy, but from people who have respect, who are converted, have wisdom themselves. But in the multitude, get a number of opinions. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So learn to exercise wisdom if you're going to be a real leader. Now let's turn to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians in your New Testament here. And I'm going to turn to Philippians, if I can catch this, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, if you would, and beginning in verse... No, I'm sorry, I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3. And let's be sure we pick up there. He says here, the Apostle Paul, inspired of God, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition... Why do people go off and fight God? Why do people go off and get drunk? Why do people leave their husbands or wives? 
why do people cause trouble? Because in nearly all cases, when you understand it, it's a matter of self-will, self-will and vanity. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit or vanity, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. Try as a leader to see the big picture. See what Almighty God wants. Study this book, the Bible. Feed on it. Feed on it to see the mind of God about how God would have us lead and make decisions. Now, in chapter 3, he talks about the resurrection from the dead. And he says in verse 12, Philippians 3, 12, not that I've already attained to the resurrection, of course, or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may hold, lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Don't worry about the past all the time. It's done. Try to move on. Do the work of God. Be a leader. Prepare for the coming government of God. Be part of that team that's preparing for that government so you can be part of that government. He says, move on. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but I do this forgetting those things behind, reaching forward to those things ahead. I press. That can mean push. As old my coach Comenci said, drive, drive yourself. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as many as are mature, if you want to be a mature Christian, to be a leader, have this mind. Go all out for one thing, and that is the kingdom of God. Have one great hero, not some basketball star, not some rock star, rap star, one hero. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the living God. That's your ultimate hero. As many as are mature have this mind. And if anything else think, you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. So we're to press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And brethren, we should press toward that. We should drive ourselves toward that. That should be our goal. We should want to be a leader in that effort to prepare for that tremendous event of Christ coming back to this earth as King of Kings. And we then would have shown Almighty God, we should have shown our Lord and Jesus, Savior Jesus Christ, that we are loyal. We will have been showing Him that we are loyal. We will have been showing Him that we are zealous, really zealous to do God's work, zealous for the things of God. And we will have shown Christ and God the Father that we're an active part of the team the group, the organization, the true church, the true work which Christ is now using to prepare to rule this entire world and later perhaps the whole universe in tomorrow's world. I want to be part of that team. I'm sure you want to be part of that team. So let's do our part to be Christian leaders, to go above and beyond and prepare for the real goal that lies ahead of us.